Welcome to the audio channel of the Reverend Dr. C.H.E. Sadoffel. His purpose is to preach Christ, teach the Bible, and make disciples. Now let us open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to him proclaim the Word of God. So church, I would invite the congregation to stand and please turn to Psalm chapter 8. As we will first pray and then read the Word of God. Psalm chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. You were as a lamp to our paths and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen his servant to deliver a word of truth, so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Psalm chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, the NASB says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Please be seated. Church, as we continue our series preaching through the Psalms, we now find ourselves in Psalm number 8. And the big idea, the overall picture of Psalm number 8 as a whole, is that it celebrates the glory and the grace of God. It rehearses who God is and what He has done. It especially rehearses who God is and what he has done with, who God is and what he has done for humankind. The only part of the created order made in his image. Now that's what Psalm number 8 says overall. And next time, we're going to consider the psalm in its totality. But this morning, we're going to consider one piece of Psalm number 8. When in Psalm chapter 8, verse 4, David asks the question, What is man? What is man? What makes man man? What makes you as a person? What makes you, you? What's the thing that gives your existence meaning? What's the thing that gives your existence substance? When David asks the question, what is man? What he's asking is, who are you? Now, I just spewed out a whole bunch of questions. They're probing. 
They entreat you towards a path of self-examination. And my question is, you may have formulated some answers in your mind already. My question now is, why do any of your answers to those questions matter? Who are you? What is man? It's a question. It's a question that's designed, as with any other question, in search of an answer. And it nudges all of us to begin a search for who we are, our identity. Who are you? Now, when I say identity, I'm not asking you what your name is. I'm not asking you what you do. I'm not asking you what your titles are. Those are things that describe you. But it doesn't tell me, it doesn't tell us, it doesn't tell other people who you are. When I say, what is man, initiate a search for identity. Identity is something constant. It's not something disposable. It's not something you are for a season and then throw away. It's something constant that animates your entire life and is a core part of you that determines who you are and how you interact in and through reality. What is man? Now this morning, the purpose of the sermon is we're going to search for an answer to the question, what is man? We're going to go on a search to answer the question of human identity. And developing an answer to this question is a big deal because who you are or who you think you are is going to determine how you interact in and through everyday life and how you move in and through reality. And here's a sneak preview. We're going to answer the question, what is man? Only the Bible is going to have the right answer. Only the Bible. But other people have tried to answer the question, what is man? And we're going to explore alternative answers only to expose how fraudulent they are and only to reveal how truly true the Bible is. Because at the end of the day, only the Creator can tell the creature who He really is. Only the manufacturer can provide proper operating instructions for the device and only the potter can tell the clay why the clay was made, and what it was purposed for. What is man? Psalm number 8 begins. David says, O Lord, our Lord. Stop right there. David begins by saying, O Lord, our Lord. David already is operating on a certain set of data, a certain set of facts. He says, O Lord, our Lord, number one, recognizing that God is real. He, number two, recognizes God as God. He says, O Lord, my Adonai, or supreme cosmic ruler. He recognizes that God isn't a God of dirt. He recognizes that God isn't a guy who lives under a bridge. He's a supreme cosmic ruler of everything. And he says, O Lord, our Lord, meaning 
God has a particular relationship with a particular set of people. David begins looking at and considering God, but there is another way to consider answering the man question. You could develop your identity without bothering with God at all. What is man? Possible answer number one. You are someone without God. You define who you are without even thinking about your creator. There are many different labels this identity falls under. You could ascribe to the worldview of scientific atheism. You could ascribe to the worldview of materialism. You could ascribe to the worldview of rationalism. But the point is the same. You define you based on nothing to do at all with God. When you define who you are without God and you look up at the night sky, you don't say there's a God who made that. When you look at the moon and the stars, you would never dare say anyone ordained that for a purpose or a reason. You look up at the grandeur of the universe and say, all that just happened. Blind, purposeless, non-directed, indifferent forces of nature just simply made things the way that they are. You would never dare say things happen for a reason. You just say things happen. And that includes you. Science tells us the universe is billions upon billions of light years wide. That's a size that's incomprehensible, but I'm going to paint a picture. I want you to imagine 100 football fields, and we we glue them together. So you have this massive rectangle. It's huge. And let's draw a piece of paper, one huge piece of paper that occupies the space all those football fields are in. Then we're going to go to the center of that piece of paper and draw a teeny tiny dot. Boop! One dot. Relative to the size of the entire universe, one person is astronomically smaller than that dot. One person is less significant than that teeny tiny dot. One person matters far less than that teeny tiny dot on a speck of paper. When we think about ourselves without God, beloved, we are but specks upon specks upon specks upon specks upon specks, which animates a worldview of meaninglessness and insignificance. When you think about who you are without God, cosmically speaking, human beings are pieces of cosmic dust that no one is mindful of. Gravity doesn't care that you're going on identity search. Have you asked the sun recently what it thinks about you? It won't give you an answer because the universe, because creation isn't mindful of you. Even if other people are mindful of you, they are still insignificant pieces 
of cosmic dust. And that's just when you look up. When you look out, you're going to see a world. You'll see some good in the world. You'll see some civic virtue, but you'll also see some bad. And psychologically, the little bit of bad that you see far outweighs any of the good. You'll see very quickly that the world is broken, that people are broken who have broken identities. And since the beginning of time, people have been trying to fix the world, but no one has thus far succeeded. Since the beginning of time, people have still had the same old problems. Something is wrong and no one can fix it. And then when you look down in forming an identity without God, you see the dust. You see where you're going to end up. You see that in a universe where things just happen, nothing ever happens for a reason, Mother Teresa and Hitler end up in the same place. Where you were born out of insignificance and you will die in insignificance. So what would ever make you think anything you do in between would ever amount to any significance? Is your self-esteem crushed yet? Exactly, because that is what happens when you develop an identity without God. It leads to meaninglessness, despair, and hopelessness. Possible answer number two. What is man? Possible answer number two. You are what you do. You are what you do, which on the surface doesn't exactly seem like a bad idea. You could be a medical doctor, a physician. You could be a lawyer. You could be famous and be an entertainer. You can even be a famous Bible teacher that goes all around the world telling people about Jesus. But here's the problem. If you define who you are based on what you do, what invariably is going to happen is that you're going to find someone who does it better. If you define who you are based on what you do, what happens when you stop doing it? What happens when you can't do it anymore due to circumstances beyond your control? What happens if no one notices what you're doing? And no one says, hey, you're doing a great job. What if you're doing what you're doing in silence and no one seems to care? And then there's a thing to consider. What you're doing really isn't all that special. Because people have been doing the same thing since the beginning of time. So what makes what you do and deriving identity from that significant? In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, be Solomon writes Ecclesiastes under the pretense that God does not exist and takes everything to its natural conclusion. He begins in Ecclesiastes 1 writing about the futility of work. And this is what Ecclesiastes 1 verses 2 to 5 and 9 says. Ecclesiastes 1 verses 2 to 5 and 9. 
Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does a man have in all of his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. That which has been done is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Translation, what you're doing, everyone else has been doing since the beginning of time. There's nothing new under the sun. Beloved, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with work. Because when God created Adam in paradise, he designed him to work, to cultivate and to keep. And that was in paradise where nothing was wrong. But he did not create Adam to be work. After all, animals can work. Robots can work. Computer programs can work, but a man, a person, a flesh and bones human being does not equal their work. Work loses all meaning without something to work for. And unless there is something greater that transcends the work, then that which has been done is that which will be. And there is nothing new under the sun. So that's the second answer. What is man? You define who you are based upon what you do. Here's possible answer number three. What is man? You are what you get. You are what you get. As in, you define who you are based upon how much money you have in the bank. You define who you are based upon your educational attainment. You define who you are based upon all the accolades and stuff that you acquire in your life. But the problem in defining who you are based upon what you get is that in pursuit of getting, you lose yourself. And you now become less and less of you in search, in lusting after, in coveting whatever it is that you want. Beloved, human beings aren't things. Human beings aren't stuff. So when a flesh and bones person begins striving after money and sacrificing their health, sacrificing relationships, sacrificing love, sacrificing everything else in order to get a thing, after a certain point, there will be none of them left in order to pursue this thing. The person ends up engaging in Baal worship, where they cut themselves, they sweat, they dance from something that isn't real, from something that's a mist or a vapor, and it's sanctification in reverse. Instead of you growing step by step and day by day, getting more life, you step by step and day by day die. Cutting, harming, and hurting yourself for something non-substantial. And the grand irony is, if you sacrifice enough and end up getting whatever it is that you wanted, guess what? You're not happy. You feel unfulfilled. 
Because a flesh and bone spiritual human being who has a spirit, a soul, and a body will never be contented with stuff. But then, what happens when you lose what you get? What happens now when you go broke? Now you're reduced back to dust, to nothingness. People are not artificial things. Therefore, we can never be reduced to artificial things nor be satisfied with them because stuff, what we get, can never fill the eternal hole in the human heart. That's the third answer. What is man? You are what you get. Here's the fourth possible answer. You are how you respond. What is man? Possible answer number four. You are how you respond. This deals with your feelings. This strategy is somewhat grounded in reality. Because this strategy says life is unpredictable. I can't control what life throws at me, but I can control how I respond to the unpredictability of life. Someone who defines who they are based upon how they respond will say things like, just be bold, just be brave, keep a stiff upper lip regardless of the circumstances. And this way of definition of defining yourself is attractive because presumably it gives people a way to deal with suffering, to deal with hardship. There was a psychiatrist by the name of Viktor Frankl. He was a Jew who was sent to Auschwitz, the concentration camp in Hitler's Nazi Germany. And he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And it sold, I think now, more than 14 million copies. Because he, as a physician, tried to make sense of how people would process this immoral, barbaric torture in a concentration camp. How did people mentally deal with literally being in hell on earth? And this is what Dr. Frankel says in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. Quote, Suffering in and of itself is meaningless. We give our suffering meaning by the way in which we respond to it. You cannot control what happens to you in life, but you can always control what you feel and do about what happens to you. End quote. So here's what Dr. Frankel says. He says, we can't control life. The only thing we can control is how we respond. So when life throws hardship, suffering, and abuse at you, you can't control any of that. What you can control is how you choose to respond. But the problem in defining who you are based upon how you respond is it places way too much faith in you. When you boil people down to their cores, what we're not going to find, beloved, are ironclad, rock-solid people who are titans, who are bedrocks, who never waver. What you're going to find in most people is that deep down on the inside, they are broken. They are fragile. 
And they are not standing on a bedrock of truth. They are rather standing on something highly unstable. And if you apply enough external pressure, it doesn't matter who you are or who you think you are. Eventually, a natural flesh and bones human being is going to break. If we were to define who we are based upon how we respond... We have to come face to face with the reality that self-control is a finite resource. If we're looking into ourselves as a source of strength and confidence, confidence is a finite resource. If we look around us in the world for something to have hope in, hope is a finite resource. And when all of those things are expended, when all of those things are now tapped out, that is when a person can no longer choose to respond A or B. That is when they break. If we were to ever define our identity based upon how we respond, this simply places too much faith in ourselves and is an end result of idolatry. And then practically speaking, defining who we are based upon how we respond is practically cruel. Can you imagine going up to a mother and a father who just saw their child suffer something horrendous, a medical calamity, and they are holding their child in their hands and have to bury their child? Can you imagine telling those parents, keep a stiff upper lip? Are you mad? What about a grandmother who walks into church wanting to worship God in peace and then a madman comes in and guns everyone down except her? Who's going to tell grandma, keep a stiff upper lip? Not me. Not me. But that's the fraudulent things people will do if you define who you are based upon how you respond. The Bible, beloved, tells us that when we search ourselves deep, deep down on the inside, the human heart is deceitful above all else, and what you're going to find is total depravity. And if you define who you are based upon deceit and depravity, the end result, once again, is despair and hopelessness. So that's the fourth answer. What is man? Possible answer number five, you are who you are associated with. You are who you are associated with. This pertains to relationships, people that you know, people that you're affiliated with, people that you care for, people that you love. And this one is easy to dismantle. Because if you define who you are based upon someone else, guess what? People are unreliable. People change. People that you idolize and you put so much emotional stock in, they're going to let you down and your heroes turn into being not so much heroes anymore. 
People will tell you to your face, I don't love you anymore, I don't want you anymore, I don't need you anymore. And even if you love them, they're not going to love you back. How stable can a person truly be if they put their sense of self and it's predicated on another person who is unstable? So that's number five. As you can see, all five thus far haven't worked out so well. What is man? We've tried psychology. We've tried philosophy. We've tried gimmicks, schemes, and fads, and they've all failed. So what does the Bible say? What does God say? What is man? The Bible says, you are who you are, not as a function of yourself. You are who you are, not as a function of yourself. You are as a function of God. Identity, according to the Bible, it's not philosophical, it's not psychological. Identity is theological. You are who you are as a function of your maker. How does David begin Psalm number 8? He begins looking up at God, speaking about God, and speaking to God. That's Psalm 8, verse 1. He doesn't begin thinking about who he is. He doesn't begin thinking about who humankind is until verse 4. But he begins looking at God first. Verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, then he says, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? But notice, church, when David asks the identity question, he asks a question. He doesn't say, this is who I am, period. He doesn't make a declarative statement about who human beings are. He asks a question, what is man that contemplates his maker? And when he says, what is man, that word man comes from a Hebrew word, enosh which means a creature that is created, that is subsequently dies, that is frail, that needs support, that is dependent. David asking, what is man, is looking back to the beginning in Genesis 1, when the Creator made man in the first place. And when the Creator made man, God began by saying, He said, let us make man. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had an agreement in and amongst Himself. And He said, let's have an intent, let's have a purpose, let's have a design for this creature called man. And then God took, as a potter molds clay, he took his hands and molded dust from the ground. And that's where we came from, which tells us something. Do you know what we are without God? Dust. 
God spoke everything else into existence but for man, for Enosh, as a potter molds clay, he personally and intimately molded dust into human beings. But not only that, not only did God have a purpose, not only did he have an intent, not only did his creation of mankind involve more personal intimacy, but God then breathed his ruah into us, which means now we became spiritual beings. Do you know what we would be if God did not breathe his ruah into us? Animals. Look at a monkey. Look at a dog. Look at a fish. That is a creature without a ruah, without the God-breathed breath, which now makes us spiritual beings. And now, being creatures that were made in the image and likeness of God, now because of God's ruah, we have moral agency, we have intellect, we have will, we have religion. And we also have reason. Do you know who's not looking up at the sky and considering who made it? A worm. Do you know who's not thinking about what their purpose in life is? A rock. Only we are. Because man, Enosh, is dependent. We are created, but yet we have been given a special place in God's created order. All the alternative theories I went through initially, numbers one through five, they made one of two errors. They either overestimated human beings or they underestimated human beings. And what the Bible tells us is this, when we think of ourselves by ourselves, we are dust. But when we think about ourselves with God, we are the only part of the created order who are the image bearers, and God has placed us in an exalted position in creation. God made man to be his regents, to be his representatives to the rest of creation, and gave him power over his world to rule under God's divine will. When we think about who we are relative to God, God is always the center of the universe, but God places man in an honorable, exalted position, meaning human beings, when we think about who they are in the context of God, every human being has honor. Every human being has dignity. Every human being has innate value, not as a function of them, but as a function of God. Realize, church, when God made human beings, he didn't put them in a garbage dump. He put them in paradise. It was paradise for man. God didn't need paradise, but he made us. He made a world and put us in perfection. He gave us a world hospitable to life that's not only beautiful. He not only gave us a ground to walk on, that ground makes potatoes. That ground makes kale. He not only gave us animals, but those oxen and cattle can plow the ground so we can feed ourselves, have babies, create buildings, and build civilizations. God treasures humankind so highly that he became one of us in order 
to save us. Our identity is not psychological or philosophical, it's theological. And realize that the only way a person can think about themselves in context of God is if they have their spiritual eyes open by the Holy Spirit regenerating them and opening their eyes to a spiritual reality where a person no longer looks down to dust and say, that's where I came from, nature made me, I'm the same as animals, where a person no longer looks out and derives who they are from what other people say, but a person looks up and realizes there is a God above creation that formed them and gave them breath and gave them real spiritual life. And here's the thing, someone being made in God's image even applies if you are not saved. He didn't make saved man in his image, he made all of humankind. So even people who say, I don't like Jesus, and who are allergic to church, even they have innate God-given value because they too are God's creatures. With a biblical worldview, Joe Schmo is not a Schmo. He's Joe. He's a person. He has value. He has dignity. Because by God's common grace, the sun still shines on saints and sinners. And the rain still falls, whether you are a member of Christ's church or not. This God-given identity applies to human beings without qualification. And Psalm number 8 verse 4 asks the question, What is man that you, O Lord, take thought of him? Take thought of can also be translated remember. And remember is what? The opposite of forget. You forget things that are of low value. You forget things that are of no importance to you. But God does not forget man. God remembers him. And God taking thought also points to the fact that he continually, back then, now, and will in the future, take care of humankind. Beloved, realize something. It doesn't matter where you start reading your Bible. It doesn't matter how you came about opening your first page of Scripture. Everyone's Bible always ends in the same place. It always ends in Revelation chapter 22. And God taking thought of, God being mindful of His elect tells us, that every moment of every day, everything that's happening in the world reveals that God is taking, taking thought of his children in order to bring to an end all of history where it all ends in glory. Where it all ends with his children looking their Savior face to face and being saturated in his glorious gospel light. But not only that, God not only takes thought of man, he also cares for him. Which can also be translated visits. God visits his creatures. 
And when God visits, this is intimately related to his mercy. God visits. He comes near to us when he wants to do us good. God draws away from us when he's going to judge us. And God became one of us. Man did not come up to heaven knocking on heaven's door. God descended from heaven and visited us. Not to judge us, but to show us mercy. And praise be to God that he visits us because a visitation as a function of mercy is one of the freest gifts of grace in the entire world. For what does James 1.27 say? That pure and undefiled religion is when we visit orphans and widows. When we come near to them, when we come close to them in order to show them mercy. So what is man? Our identity is theological. Man is a creature made in God's image. Man is a creature that God takes thought of and cares for. And thank goodness that God does that. Otherwise, we'd be left to ourselves. Otherwise, we'd be left with the original five identities that I spoke about at the top. Man is a creature whose only hope is that God remembers and cares for him. Abraham did not find God. Abraham, God took thought of. God remembered his people. And he is the one who made a covenant with Abraham. He took thought of him and cared for through the line of history all of Abraham's descendants so we would eventually get Jesus. Noah did not knock on heaven's door. He didn't climb a ladder. God took thought of, he remembered humankind and said, Noah, build the ark. And when the vessel was built, he cared for, led and guided that ship and delivered it into safety. When the, when the Hebrews were in Egyptian bondage, God remembered his people. And he came near to them by sending a mediator, Moses, who told Pharaoh, let my people go. And when you come face to face with your Lord Jesus Christ and you are dressed in filthy, polluted garments and say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you are my redeemer. I believe that you are my savior. He takes away your filthy garments and puts on his pristine robes of perfect white righteousness. And God can do that because he remembers the cross. He remembers when he was pierced to wipe away the penalty for all of those sins. And now he remembers not any of your sins. He he takes thought of you and will now care for you until you see him again one day in paradise. What is man? A creature whose only hope is that God remembers and cares for him. But now here's the problem. We live in a world where some people don't derive their identity from God. We live in a world where some people define who they are based upon what they achieve, based upon what they get, 
based upon someone else, based upon an atheistic worldview. And that, beloved, is life on planet Earth, where there are some people who recognize who they are as a function of God and other people who don't. And when your identity is derived from something other than God, from someone other than your maker, now, what ha- now God's design for man's dominion over creation now becomes domination. Now, instead of divine subjection, now you have sin. Now, instead of light, truth, and justice, now you have oppression, now you have bigotry, now you have darkness. Now you have image bearers of God who try their best to shatter their own image and to shatter the image of those around them. Now, Psalm number 8 appoints an ideal where it asks the question, what is man in consideration of God? The problem is that when we look out of the world around us, we see plenty of poor, of subpar examples of what human beings were created to be, which is why the best answer to the question, what is man, is Jesus Christ. He and he alone is the prime example of what a man ought to be. And it's hard to secure our identity from God the Father because no one's ever seen him. It's hard to secure identity from the Holy Spirit because no one's ever seen him. But when we derive our identity from the Messiah, the second member of the Godhead, Jesus... He is someone who we have seen, who we have heard, who we have fellowshiped with, who died on a real cross, and who really and truly walked among us. What is man? The best answer is Jesus Christ. No, I just did something. I applied Psalm number 8 to Jesus. How did I do that? Who gave me the right to make connection between Psalm number 8 and Jesus? How did we get there from here? The answer is, I didn't do that. The Bible made that connection for me. Because the writer of Hebrews looks back to Psalm number 8 and applies it to the Messiah. This is what Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 to 8 says. For God did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a while a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over all the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Him is Christ. The writer of Hebrews was not only applying Psalm number 8 to Jesus. The writer in Hebrews was doing the same thing that we can do now. He can look out at the world around him and say, Hey, 
It looks like we live in a world where Christ's work is done, where his work is complete, where he's been crowned king. But it looks like in reality, things seem as if Christ is not king. Where things are not subject under his feet. And Christ is in heaven as we speak, after he has sat down, having completed his work. And there will be a day when Christ returns, and it is then that we will see the fulfillment, where everything on earth will be subject under Christ's feet, and Christ's redeemed, Christ's elect, will live out in eternity with their God-given identities. But that does not mean, church, we have delayed fulfillment. That does not mean, church, that we don't have good news right here, right now. Because Christ already came and finished his work. Where those who are now in Christ now abide in him who is the true vine. Now, for those who abide in Christ, we never think of ourselves without God because we realize the only reason we are somebody is with Jesus because we are attached to the true vine. Jesus' name is Emmanuel, meaning God with us, not God without us. We realize now that when we work, when we labor, God has called all human beings to work. But it doesn't matter what you do. You don't do for the sake of doing. You do for the sake of your maker. And even if the world around you doesn't notice, even if the world around you doesn't value what you do, God does. And for everything that you may lose now, Christ will make amends in eternity. For those who abide in Christ, you don't work for what you get here on earth, because what you get here on earth won't last. When you go to the grave, you can't take it with you. But when you abide in Christ, you labor and work knowing that your heavenly Father will store up a treasure in heaven for you, which is not perishable and which can never be taken away. When you abide in Christ, you realize life will throw many things at you, especially when you follow Christ. Jesus himself says, take up your cross and follow me. You know you don't have a plan for how you're going to respond to suffering and adversity that hasn't declared itself yet. But you know, being in Christ, you know who will stand with you. You know who will empower and strengthen you to endure that adversity so that situation will no longer work against you, it'll work for you. You know that in Christ, suffering is never for nothing. And God takes human suffering so seriously, he sent his son to die on a cross. You will never respond to life by yourself because you respond in Jesus. And when it comes to your relationships, when you are in Christ, you are now tapped into an eternal source of hope, an eternal source of confidence, an eternal source of joy. You never have to dig down deep 
or rely on how other people respond to you to navigate through life because you are well tapped into. You are a tree firmly planted with roots that derive nourishment from the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In a relationship with him, your hope never dies because your Redeemer always lives. And the well of hope he provides is eternal because God can never let you down. Here's the best news yet. We live in a world where people are despised, rejected, and spat upon, where the world will say, you are nothing. That's reality. But when you are in Jesus Christ, when you cling to the hem of his garments, now because of who he is, now because of what he has done, and because now we are in him, in the Messiah, that is now when, regardless of who you are, your Father in heaven looks at you and says, This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. You are now somebody forever in eternity because of your precious Lord and Savior. Now let me ask you this, church. If you are something, if you are precious, if you are someone in God's eyes, what do you have to worry about? What is man? Man is a dignified creature made in God's image who lives to glorify God, pursuing imitation of the only perfect man, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your light. We thank you that your word is not some otherworldly prescription, O Lord, that has no relation to life here on earth. You have addressed the human condition in your word because you, O Lord, are the one who made us. And we now see that all human beings, by your divine handiwork, have purpose, have value, have meaning, not, O Lord, in what, who we are, what we do, but because of the most precious treasure there is, Jesus Christ. I pray that you take these words, O Lord, and turn the hearts and minds of people so they will experience your nearness, that wherever they are, whoever they are, whatever it is they are doing, they will find divine acceptance because of the Messiah, and they, O Lord, will find satisfaction and contentment in you, knowing, O Lord, that when you look at with pleasure your children, Nothing can ever separate them from the love of their Heavenly Father, secured for us by the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We do hope that you have been enriched and equipped by the preaching of Dr. Sadoffel. For more valuable resources, please visit WCSK.org. Until next time. Peace be with you, and to God be the glory forever.